0: We are in Acts chapter 9 this morning, so let me invite you to open your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 9. We've been walking through the book of Acts over the last few months, and, and uh, we'll continue to do so until Memorial Day, and, uh, and hoping to get to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 by Memorial Day, and then we'll uh, drop off for the summer and, uh, and pick up with another, um, uh, we'll resume the second half of the book of Acts um, next next uh, winter. But we are at Acts chapter 9 today, and this is the conversion of Saul. So we're going to talk about conversion today. And, you know, if the Lord allows, uh, the, the lifespan for any of us, uh, according to Scripture, is limited to 120 years. If, you know, if everything goes according to plan. Uh, Not, are there any, anyone in the room over a hundred? Do we know anybody in here? Nobody in here? There may be some watching online, but, um, uh, but the conversion is the greatest single event uh, that can happen to you in that lifespan. You may get married, uh, you may, experience the joy of having a family. You may experience the joy of a career success. You may experience something meaningful and worthwhile, a trip or an adventure. None of those things pale in comparison to the event of regeneration, to conversion, to being born again. And so this morning, I want to highlight for you the glory of God and saving sinners. Father, we thank you for our time together today. I pray that your word would take root in our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, open our minds so that we may understand the scriptures. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide. I pray that you would use your word today to challenge us and to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. I used to love hearing conversion stories, uh, as a, a kid who didn't go to church and didn't believe in God, a teenager who uh, racked up a number of addictions by the time I was 18, uh, who lived a fairly irreligious, godless, and immoral life, um, prayed many times if I had gotten to a position where I needed God to save me and to get me out of a position or a jam in a night, but uh, without any real meaning or commitment behind that. Um, And yet, I had a group of uh, college students from the University of Oklahoma that were a part of a ministry called Young Life. Anybody ever heard of the Young Life ministry? A few of you here. Uh, And for some reason, uh, they would... um, They took an interest in me as a ninth grader and a sophomore and a junior in high school. And and it was almost like they tag-teamed. One guy would come pick me up for three or four months and would take me out, and we would ride around and run errands. And and, uh, then another guy would fill in for a few more months and another guy and another guy and and they would uh, share with me scripture and they would share with me about the gospel and they would share with me about Jesus and they would share with me the word of God. And, and as I began to um, understand and grow deeper into my struggles, I finally came to a point where um, I realized I needed Jesus and I cried out to him to save me. Uh, And that particular day, February 20th of 1991, is celebrated as the most important event of my life, the day of my conversion. And as I got to know more of these Young Life guys, I could hear the same thing in them. Um, uh, One guy, Monty, I remember him um, as a drug dealer um, selling drugs to someone else, and they overheard the gospel um, in a booth behind them at a diner and both ended up giving their life to Christ and both ended up uh, discipling me um, as, as uh, a high school kid who had just gotten saved. Uh, I remember hearing um, conversion of my friend, Eric. I mentioned maybe last week that as a um, sort of a low level organized crime guy in Chicago, that uh, he became suicidal and wanted to step out into traffic. And he said, God, this is your chance Uh, If you have anything you want to say to me, now's the time. And a a piece of trash blew in front of him and it flipped over and it was a Sunday school kids crayon drawing that says, Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life or he died for you or something to that effect. And uh, he took that as a sign and was converted. And I met him in seminary and he's a pastor today. I've always loved hearing conversion stories. Some dramatic, some very subtle uh, one notable woman uh, shared her testimony as a 90-plus-year-old woman stood up and talked about all the things that God had saved her from—prostitution and uh, gambling and, and alcohol addiction—and somebody came up to her afterward and said. Um, Miss, Miss Lizzie, I didn't know that you had been involved in any of those things. And she said, Well, Jesus saved me from those things. I never went into any of those things because he saved me, and people saw me as a moral person, but, but Jesus has saved me from all those choices in that path that I might have taken. Your conversion story may not be dynamic, your conversion story may be, uh, maybe you think it's boring, but every conversion story is a miracle. It's a miracle of God's grace that He would save a wretch like me. This morning I want us to focus on Paul, also known as Saul, and his conversion story. So follow with me in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Let's just pause here and get some context. We were first introduced to a man named Saul when Stephen, the deacon, was stoned to death. And you remember those who stoned him to death... um, as they were removing their jackets and their robes laid them at Saul's feet and Saul held the jackets of those who stoned Stephen to death and so he witnessed Stephen's death uh, in acts 7:58 the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul and then in acts chapter 8 verse 1 Saul approved of his execution Saul is maybe 25 years old uh, this is about 5 years after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended up into heaven. So just a mere five years, maybe the year 35 A.D. Saul was a student of a man named Gamaliel, and he had been there since he was about 10 years old. So he had lived in Jerusalem, though he was a Roman citizen from Cilicia, a town called Tarsus. It's what is now modern-day Turkey. He was a Jewish person who was trained as a Pharisee and he was zealous for the law. It's odd to me that there's no indication that he had ever met Jesus personally during his Jesus's ministry. And if you're reading Acts for the first time, you might not know that Saul is the same as the apostle Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name uh, as a a member of the tribe of Benjamin. The most famous Benjaminite was Saul, King Saul, the first king of Israel. And so Saul, his Hebrew name was Saul. But also being a Roman citizen, uh, he had a Roman name and it was Paul. So if you've ever gotten that confused, who is Saul and who is Paul? and Now you know, they're the same person. And the way he's introduced in Acts 7.58 and Acts 8.1 um, you know, Luke is writing this and, and Luke is a traveling companion to Saul. And so Luke has firsthand knowledge of all these events that took place in Saul's life. And so Luke um, is introducing Saul in this dark way. As a matter of fact, if this were a movie, every time Saul would, the camera would pan to him, ominous music would play and he would be dressed in all black throughout Saul's history, he describes his own actions and his own mindset at this particular time in this way. You don't have to turn there. But in Galatians one thirteen, he said, I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. Have you ever experienced violence for being a Christian? Has anyone ever hit you or beat you with a stick or a rod or With fists? Have you ever bled as a result of your testimony? In Acts 22, Paul described his time here. He said, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women. In Acts 22, verses 19 through 20, he said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, after another, I imprisoned them and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of, your Stephen, when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving, watching over the garments of those who killed him. In Acts 26, he said, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I also cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme and in raging fury against them I persecuted them even to foreign cities. He describes his own mentality toward Christians as raging fury. Saul is on his way in Acts chapter 9 on an anti-mission trip. Instead of going to share the gospel, Saul gets approval from the high priest to go to Damascus to beat, arrest, and to imprison Christian men and women. Saul is nothing less than a terrorist. Do you know anyone who is opposed to Jesus? Have you ever met somebody who is antagonistic toward the gospel, angry enough to fight you if you mention the name Jesus? When I first became a believer, I didn't know any better. I just started telling people, uh, about my salvation experience. I prayed this prayer. This man showed up. He shared the gospel, uh, told me who Jesus was and what He, what he did for me on the cross. And, and, and I had more than one of my friends that uh, I had you know, previously run with that, um, that were furious and would yell at me or curse me out or not want to stop calling me and uh, stop spending time with me. But I've never had anyone want to fight me Saul was on another level of terrorism. Uh, one of our church members here uh, last week, I, I talked a little bit about sharing the gospel and these divine appointments. And, and he said, My neighbor came up to me and he said, Hey, what's the good news? And he, he, he went in later and he said, Ah, oh, I blew it. I should have, if somebody asked me what's the good news, I should have said, You know, the. the got into the gospel. And so he made a commitment. The next time somebody says that to me, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get into the gospel. And so sure enough, a few weeks later, maybe a month later, a, a union came up to him and said, what's the good news? And he said, the good news is that Jesus died on the cross to forgive my sins. And the guy just got furious. He just yelled at him. You can't bring that here and don't talk to me about this. And he, he yelled at him cursed at him. This is Saul-like, but Saul is on a whole nother level. Look at verse 3. As Saul is going on his way, he's approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. "'whom you are persecuting. "'But rise and enter the city, "'and you will be told what you are to do.' "'The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, "'hearing the voice, but seeing no one. "'Saul rose from the ground, "'and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. "'So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. "'And for three days he was without sight, "'and neither ate nor drank.'" just pause here, and describe this moment in Saul's life when he was on mission to accomplish this zealous, persecuting, violent, angry trip to Damascus, which is a region called the Decapolis, an area of 10 Roman cities, Greek cities in the Roman Empire on the other side of uh, Israel to the, uh, to the east of Israel. Paul is on his way when he has this experience of being confronted by Jesus himself. Now, it's reported that Jesus appears to Paul. He's visible to Paul. Paul will later say that that Jesus appeared to me as an apostle, as one untimely born. So he describes visibly seeing Jesus in this moment. Now, let's just be clear this is not Saul's conversion. Paul is not saved here, Paul is stopped here. He's not yet received the Holy Spirit. Saul has not yet been saved, he has not yet been forgiven of his sins, he has only been confronted by Jesus and immediately recognizes two truths. Number one, he's wrong about Jesus. He thought he was right. He didn't believe that Jesus was alive. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't believe that Jesus had been resurrected. He likely believed that the story that was circulated by other Pharisees, that his disciples came in the middle of the night and stole Jesus' body and made it look like he had risen from the dead. Saul was wrong about Jesus. And he realized that the moment he was arrested and fell off his horse and was captivated by this light and this voice, When the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? He said, I am Jesus. And in that moment, he knew that he was wrong. You talk about a wake-up moment. How many of you are risking your eternity based on who you think Jesus is, and maybe you don't realize that you're wrong about who Jesus is? You could go, up and down the street and talk to people. And you could ask them, who is Jesus? And, and you'll get uh, lots of different answers. I think Jesus was a good man. I think Jesus was probably a good teacher. I think Jesus was probably um, um, you know, a holy man or revered, but I also think he might've been mythologized. You might get answers like that. Saul was wrong about Jesus. And he was confronted with the truth of who Jesus is. That's the first truth he realized is that he was wrong. The second truth he realized is that he's been persecuting Jesus. Jesus said, Paul, you're persecuting me. And you might say, well, wait, Saul is not persecuting Jesus. Jesus is already in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is is not on the earth anymore. So how could Saul persecute Jesus? He's carrying off Christians. He's beating up men and women and carrying them to prison, and he's approving of their death. Saul's been persecuting Christians, not Jesus. How How can Jesus say that Paul is persecuting him? Here's the truth. Jesus identifies himself with his followers. To persecute a follower of Jesus is to persecute Jesus himself. And there's a warning here for all of us. Be very careful about the way you talk about the church. Jesus calls the church his body and his bride. Can you think of any two more personal statements? Two personal descriptors? Jesus identifies with his persecuted followers. He's the head of the church. And when the church is persecuted, Jesus takes it personally. Have you ever persecuted the church? Have you ever done something to the church? I remember the first week we merged together, Rock Hill and Ridgeline. And somebody snuck into the lobby and with a Sharpie marker wrote satanic graffiti all over the foyer. 666 and Satan and pentagrams and all kinds of things all over, all over the furniture, all over the woodwork, outside there, everywhere. Have you ever been involved in persecuting the church or persecuting a Christ follower? Jesus takes that personally And Saul learned this in this moment. So what happens? He is now blinded through this light. Uh, He has um, rose up from the ground. Uh, All the men that were traveling with him, maybe a half a dozen men are traveling with him and and maybe more we don't know. But um, they stood speechless. They heard the voice, but they didn't see anything. Except for the light, Saul rose from the ground, and even though his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days, Saul didn't eat anything, and he couldn't see anything, and he didn't drink anything. Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days he remained with the disciples at Damascus. Let's just pause here. This is where we see Saul's actual conversion. This is where the Bible words come in, things like John chapter three, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Uh, This is where we get language like regeneration. This is the moment where he yields and surrenders his life to Jesus. He is given sight as these scales fall from his eyes, but he's also given spiritual sight as he now understands the gospel and who Jesus is. It's amazing to me that God uses this man, Ananias, and we learn that he's a disciple. We see that Jesus speaks to Ananias through this vision. Jesus gives him instructions. And just like we noted last week with Philip, Ananias immediately obeys without objection. He doesn't say no. He gives a few comments, right? He's, he's going to comment a little bit. I, I know who you're talking about. Uh, are you sure you want me to go see him? Um, I've heard about this guy and, um, and yet it's not an objection. Um, he's just discussing this with the Lord and the Lord gently and kindly just says go uh, and he commands him to go. And so Ananias obeys. He obeys Jesus and he goes. What an instrument in God's hands. What an instrument to go where God has called him to go even when it means there is some risk involved. Have you ever followed the Lord by faith and there was some risk involved? Ananias has some risk here and he obeys Jesus and he trusts in Jesus. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, you probably know this verse as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths straight. And this is Ananias, trusting in the Lord with all his heart and not leaning on his own understanding. His own understanding would have told him, This guy is going to beat me up and he's going to put me in chains and he's going to drag me back to Jerusalem. And I don't want to take that risk, but he follows the Lord in obedience. And then he lays his hands on Saul. And it's amazing to me that the first thing he says is, Brother, this man is an enemy. This man is a violent persecutor. This man has beaten and uh, demonstrated evil toward other Christians. But as a result of encountering Jesus, Ananias calls him brother. The Lord Jesus sent me. Regain your sight. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it's, it's neat that Ananias baptizes him. We just watched baptism a few weeks ago. And I can imagine in light of doing these baptisms a few weeks ago, as Ananias baptized Saul, that Saul was buried with Jesus in the likeness of his death and raised up to walk in a new life. And we know the new life that Saul walked in. He became the greatest single missionary force in the history of the church. Talk about an incredible 180 degree turn. Look at verse 20 and immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confu—I'm sorry confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Let's pause there. Just a couple of observations. Saul immediately proclaims that Jesus is the Son of God. He is immediately declaring with his lips who Jesus is. Some of the greatest witnesses to Jesus are the newest believers. You know, you've been in church for a long time and and, and I kind of poke people, you know, you need to share the gospel and you need to get out there and, and share the gospel and you need to tell people about Jesus. And and sometimes those of us who've been in church for a long period of time, um, we need that. And, and we don't often do that enough. But you get somebody who who's just right out of the darkness and they know how they've been groping around and they know how confusing it is in the world and they know how they've tried different substances and different belief systems and different and nothing has brought them peace and nothing has brought them hope and, and nothing has made a difference in their life and then they get saved and their eyes are opened and and they're flooded with joy and they're overwhelmed by the peace and the mercy of God and the, the grace of God that would save a sinner like them and and you get somebody like that and they don't even know what to say sometimes and they just open their mouth and all they can do is talk about Jesus and all they can do is talk about how he changed them and the work that he did in their life and how he made himself known to them. And they don't care. Some of the greatest witnesses to Jesus are the newest believers. That may be some of you in this room today. You're surrounded by lost people and you, you've experienced the grace of God and the salvation of a sinner like me, the, the, someone who's experienced forgiveness and new life. And you can't stop talking about Jesus. This reminded me as we think about this area of Damascus. I had this insight maybe 10 years ago and it's never quite left me. And I'm always kind of amazed by it. How are there already disciples in Damascus? Why was there already a groundswell of movement there? The apostles were still in Jerusalem. So far as we know, in Acts chapter 7 and 8, as a result of the stoning of Stephen and the persecution of the church that broke out, they just went to Judea and Samaria, just right around Jerusalem. But Damascus was far away in the region of the Decapolis of the Ten Cities. Just remember back with me to Mark chapter 5, when Jesus crosses over the Sea of Galilee and chained up in the tombs is a man called the demoniac. (laughs) you remember that guy? He was naked. He was cutting himself. He was chained to the tombstones. Nobody knew what to do with this guy. All they could do with him was, was put him in a, like a cell in a jail kind of prison in the tombs with chains. But it says he often broke the chains. And this guy was a menace. I've been on that, on that sea, uh, that it's really a lake. It's, comparable to Lake Nakamixon It's a very small lake. You can see the other side at all times. Uh, and it's 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 um, it's quiet on a still night. And this demoniac would raise his voice and would scream and would cry. And you could hear him. The trip from where Jesus grew up or, or where Jesus' ministry was located uh, was not too far away from this area. And there's only one area where it could be because of the cliff that the the, the demons drive the pigs off. There's only one cliff on that whole sea. You can pinpoint exactly the spot. But this man possessed, when Jesus comes, it says in Mark 5, that he immediately came to Jesus, and he immediately confronted Jesus, and Jesus immediately confronted the demons, and they said, uh, we are legion. This man was possessed by a legion of demons. Jesus drove the demons out, uh, and Jesus Completely delivered this man from those demons. And when those around came, they found him dressed and in his right mind. And they couldn't believe it. And this man um, was so amazed in Mark chapter 5, verse 18 through 20, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus, that is, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. Jesus said, no, you can't come with me. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. This man possessed by a legion of demons now cleansed, now in his right mind, and Jesus releases him without any discipleship, without any growth, without any plan, you know, for Sunday school or for church planting or anything, you just go tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And Mark 5 verse 20 says, he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So maybe eight years before, maybe eight years before Saul is making his way up to Damascus, this demoniac can't stop talking about what Jesus has done for him, leaving everyone marveling at the work of Jesus. By the way, this quick trip to Damascus, it really takes three years. Uh, Saul is on his way. He's arrested by the light, by the Lord Jesus. He goes into Damascus blind. He's there for a little while, immediately proclaiming in the, um, in the synagogues that Jesus is the Lord. But in, in Galatians, we learn that Saul was in Arabia for three years, right at, immediately after this. And then he comes back into Damascus and that's when he begins to debate. And that's when they try to kill him. And that's when he's let down in a basket. For three years, Saul goes off, and he's growing in his faith in Jesus. Look at verse 26 through 31. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. These are the same Hellenists likely that killed Stephen, that Stephen disputed with. But just like Stephen, verse 30, um, and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him off to Tarsus. Luke concludes this section saying that the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. That is the church multiplied. After the great persecution came an incredible conversion and then a great time of peace. How can we conclude and what can we observe from this passage? I have nine small, quick observations in conclusion. Tony Marita teaches nine lessons about all conversions uh, that we can learn here from the Apostle Paul. I think I have a slide, if that would help you, if you're taking notes. <clears throat> yeah, there it is, thank you. man. You may not even be able to read that. Number one, Salvation is by God's amazing grace. Salvation is by God's amazing grace. Instead of executing Saul on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows him unspeakable grace. Saul didn't deserve that. He had persecuted Jesus. He had been violent toward his followers. Instead of executing Saul, Jesus saved him. Paul would later recall this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. Salvation is by God's amazing grace. He would write also to the Ephesians that it is not by works so that no one can boast. Are there any works in your life that you feel like commend you to God? That he should save you as a result of something that you've done. We often don't know what to do with someone um, like the thief on the cross. Uh, I heard somebody quote this earlier. How does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? He had no baptism. He had no communion. There was no confirmation. There was no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, no financial gifts. He didn't even wear church clothes. He couldn't even bend his knees to pray. He didn't even say the sinner's prayer. Among other things, he was a convicted thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain. Jesus didn't heal his body. Jesus didn't smite those who scoffed at him. Yet it was a thief who walked into paradise at the same hour as Jesus simply by believing. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. He had no spin from brilliant theologians, no ego, no arrogance, no shiny lights, no skinny jeans, no crafty words, no haze machines, no donuts, no coffee in the lobby, just a naked dying man on a cross who couldn't even fold his hands to pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes In him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the gospel in its simplicity. This man had no works to commend himself, and same with Saul. Salvation is by God's amazing grace. Number two, all conversions involve a life changing encounter with Jesus Christ. All conversions. All conversions involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Now, for some people the change is dramatic. They're walking in rebellion or they're walking like in Saul in religious legalism or something along those lines and zeal. But all of them involve a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ. Some it's dramatic, some it just happens quietly. Think about Acts chapter 16. Paul in the Philippian jail, and the jailer, a great earthquake breaks out, and all the uh, prisoners are about to release themselves, and this guy is about to kill himself. And then Paul says, don't, we're all still here. And he says, falls on his knees and says, what must I do to be saved? All right. That's a fairly dramatic testimony, right? This Philippian jailer. In the middle of the night, he takes Paul home, and he washes his wounds, and he heals him, and he uh, uh, bandages him, and he learns the gospel, and he, he gets baptized. That's a fairly dramatic, I mean, that's a neat story, right? But just earlier in Acts chapter 16, you meet Lydia, who simply hears the gospel and has a very quiet conversion and is saved. Both individuals were changed. Listen, don't get caught up worrying that your conversion isn't dramatic enough. All of us were saved by grace through faith and brought from death to life. How dramatic do you need it to be? Right? If you were dead and you're alive, that's enough. You don't have to pile on top of that all kinds of crazy stories of immorality and other things. It's enough that Jesus would save a sinner like us. All conversions number three involve surrender to Jesus Christ. All conversions involve surrender. I mean, in this incredible display of power and glory, Jesus simply reveals himself in a moment. And the powerful Saul, with all of his horsemen on his way, full of confidence and ego and zeal, in just one moment he learns that he does not have any power. He was no match whatsoever to Jesus. And Saul had no choice but to surrender to the lordship of the risen Jesus. He was completely helpless. Walked into town, not in power and authority with letters from the high priest, the high priest. He was walked into town by his hand and he couldn't even eat or drink for three days, couldn't see a thing. It involves surrender, surrendering to Jesus. Number four, while you and I may not have the same blinding experience as Saul, the metaphor of blindness to sight, darkness to light applies to every Christian. Saul finds out through this temporary blindness that he doesn't see clearly. (laughs) And we in our spiritual blindness and spiritual darkness and ignorance before our conversion, well, Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. In this case, the God of the world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. All of us, before we met Jesus, were in darkness. Colossians 1 says He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. All conversion has some aspect of this blindness and darkness into light. Number five, sincerity alone does not save Sincerity does not save. Saul truly believed he was doing the right thing. He, he was committed to it. He was sincere when he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. He was sincere when he approved of Stephen's death. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was serving God. He thought he was um, cleansing Israel from false teachers and false prophets and false converts. He thought he was doing a good thing and he was sincere in his beliefs, but he was sincerely wrong. Listen, you can be sincere about your other faith or not believing that Jesus is the only way and you can be wrong. The Bible says clearly in John 14 that a person must put their faith in Jesus alone. There is no other way to salvation but through him. Number six, conversion involves the reception of the Holy Spirit. Saul received the Holy Spirit, as does every Christian who truly repents and turns to Jesus in faith. The New Testament describes it in Ephesians 1. The Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. In Romans chapter 8, His Spirit testifies with our spirit that we know Him. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. If you have a conversion experience The Holy Spirit resides within you. Conversion involves receiving the Holy Spirit. Number seven, God saves the worst of sinners. I particularly love this truth that when you observe the life of Saul, I don't think we quite grasp it knowing how much of a violent menace he was, but but imagine something like an ISIS Terrorist leader coming to faith in Jesus Christ and then going around the Middle East proclaiming that Jesus is Lord. Imagine uh, an Osama bin Laden type terrorist giving their life to Jesus and becoming a missionary for the gospel. God saves the worst of sinners. Jesus loves his enemies and is glorified in showing amazing grace to the worst of sinners. Number eight, another thing we see in conversion in the life of Saul is when you become a new person, a new creation, you also receive new purpose. Saul was revealed that he, God had a plan for him, and it was an important plan. And the plan applies to all of us. We've been given a commission. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 we're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and to the ends of the earth. If you're a Christ follower, you have a new purpose for your new life. That's what baptism pictures. The old is gone, the new is come. You have been given a new purpose with the Holy Spirit. You have been given a spiritual gift at your new birth. With that spiritual gift, you've been given a congregation and a mission field and a community within which you are to operate. And at the end of your life, you will be judged by what you have done with the spiritual gift you've been given. Do you know your spiritual purpose? And are you walking in it? Are you operating in the gifts of the spirit that he has given you? Do you know that the believer will be judged? Paul says it in Corinthians that we will escape the judgment day, but every believer, our works will be piled up and exposed to fire, and that which lasts will be rewarded, and the rest will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. What a pity for someone who knows the gospel and has experienced new life to do nothing with their life to do nothing with their spiritual giftedness. You could spend your entire life earning a living and never bear any spiritual fruit for the kingdom through disciple-making, through missions, through evangelism, through any number of ways in which God has gifted you and given you opportunity to go and bear fruit. Paul had a new purpose, and so do you if you've been saved. Are you on mission? And ninth, conversion involves receiving this new family. All over the New Testament, God uses familial language. Adopted, inheritance, sons, daughters, brother, sister, father in heaven. All over we see this new language. And the truth is that conversion involving a new family means that we're family in Christ. I remember coming to faith and and coming from a broken home and a difficult home life, finding spiritual mentors and fathers and brothers and sisters in the faith, those who taught and invested in me and poured into me. And it was some of those relationships that became fruitful and life changing. We partnered together in the family of God. Paul writes about the body of Christ, comprised of many parts but operating together. Not one part of the body can operate alone. He says, can the eye say to the hand, I don't need you. Conversion involves receiving this new family. It's my hope, my sincere hope, in the midst of this message, that you will experience the greatest single event that can happen in your short lifetime. The Bible says your life is but a vapor. a a, a puff of smoke and it's gone. Have you been converted? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ and surrender by faith and repentance, trusting in Him? It's the single most important event. Nothing else matters. For all of eternity, you will either regret or cherish the day of your conversion. It's my prayer that you would be born again. Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity that we have to see the grace of God poured out on a sinner such as Paul, and to look around this room and to see others who were saved, not because of anything they had done on their own, but because of your grace and mercy demonstrated in salvation. We thank you that you love the world so much that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in you shall not perish, but will have eternal life. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would work in spite of me. I pray that you would move in, this, uh, move in this room in such a way that people would come to know you, that they might be truly born again. I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.